0: The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at norrisferrychurch.org.
1: So Nehemiah 9. Uh, we're continuing our journey through uh, the book of Nehemiah. And if you saw my Facebook or the City Post, you know we're going to do it a little differently this morning. Uh, Tracy saw that. who's out of town and uh, had a little freak out moment and said, what's going on? I assure you it's nothing radically different. We're just going to read a big portion of chapter 9 together. Uh, It's a chapter that's meant to be read in the community of faith over uh, the community. And so we're going to read the scripture as part of our worship uh, together as a body. Uh, And it was wonderful, the first service, and so I know uh, you'll enjoy it. I'm also going to, right now, just start the sermon uh, by setting the scene of the verses that we're going to read. Uh, and in the first five verses of chapter 9, that's exactly what Nehemiah is doing. He's setting the scene. Uh, and in Nehemiah 9, we continue the story right at the foot of the end of chapter 8. If you remember, Nehemiah 8 ended with the people observing for the first time in a long time uh, the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And it was a great time of rejoicing and walking in obedience to the Lord's revealed will by observing this great feast. But the last day of the feast called for a psalm assembly. And this psalm assembly would have taken place on the 23rd day of the seventh month, which is a very important month uh, for the people of Israel. And chapter 9 starts off there in the first verse on the 24th day, so the very next day. And we see that the people are still gathered For a solemn assembly. They had separated from the people of the nations around them who did not have their same covenant, Lord. They gathered in fasting, separating from the comforts of this world, wearing sackcloth, and even having dust on their heads. This was not a festive gathering, it was a serious and solemn assembly before the Lord, where they gathered to read from the Word of God and to respond to the proclamation of his word with worship and repentance. And that's exactly what they did. They read the word for three hours while they were standing. So you guys are getting off pretty easy today, okay? And then after they read the word for three hours, they kept going for another three hours uh, and responded to the word in worship and repentance. And as we get to Nehemiah 5b, just the second part of Nehemiah 5, verse 5 there, all the way through verse 31, we have a synopsis of these three hours of worship and confession in response to the reading of the Word of God. And these verses are nothing other than incredible. Uh, They're remarkable vor- verses. Jim Hamilton describes uh, their significance in the role of the Bible like this. What we have here in this passage that's Nehemiah 9 is the fullest summary of the storyline of the Old Testament in the Old Testament. If you want to understand how someone who is inspired by the Holy Spirit understood the Holy Old Testament, that is, Nehemiah is inspired by the Holy Spirit writing Scripture, an inspired commentary on it awaits. These are remarkable words. If Jim Hamilton's right, and I think he is, if we understand Nehemiah 9, then we can understand the general thrust of the entirety of the Old Testament. That's remarkable. So have that sense of excitement uh, in your minds as uh, uh, Luke Pearson, uh, Bob Nida, and Claude Bundrick come up and read for us uh, verses 5 through 31. You're about to hear recounted through Scripture the entire storyline of the Old Testament from creation to Nehemiah's day. So let's pray before we read. Luke, come on up. Lord, we pray uh, that as these verses are read and as we look at these scriptures together, that you would excite our hearts, move our hearts, move our affections, open our minds, open our ears to be captivated by this story. Lord, we're often captivated by so many things and oftentimes it's not your word. But Lord, this morning by your grace, would you thrill us with the words that are about to be read over us. Would you bless this time? Would you draw near to us through the proclamation of your word and way? we, like Israel, respond with repentance as we hear your great story. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
2: Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made the heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all, and the host of heavens worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you, and you made a covenant. You you made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt. And heard their cry at the Red Sea, and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, and all his servants, and all the peoples of his land. For you knew they acted arrogantly against our fathers, and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them, so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land, and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters by a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light the way for them in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven, and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments, and you made known to them your holy Sabbath, and commanded them commandments and statutes, a law by Moses your servant." You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger, and brought water for them out of the rock for their for their thirst. And you told them to go into the go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them.
3: But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their necks and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, "'This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt.'" And committed great blasphemies You and your great mercies Did not forsake them in the wilderness The pillar of cloud To lead them in the way Did not depart from them by day Nor the pillar of fire by night To light for them the way By which they should go You gave your good spirit To instruct them And did not withhold your manna From their mouth And gave them water for their thirst Forty years you sustained them and they lacked nothing Their clothes did not wear out And their feet did not sweat And you gave them kingdoms and peoples And allotted to them every quarter So they took possession of the land of Sihon King of Heshbon And the land of Og King of Bashan
4: You multiplied their children As the stars of heaven And you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land, that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land, and took possession of houses full of all good things cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets, who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law, yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your Spirit through your prophets, if they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the land. Nevertheless, in your great mercies you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. We see in that passage
0: how the people of Israel were in a cycle living faithfully with God, walking each day, loving Him, following His statutes and His commandments. How they fell away from Him, how they turned to sin, disobeyed, and how in their time of desperation, God restored them. And we would think, man, they they got it figured out. They know, stay with God. But then you see the cycle happen again. Scripture goes on to say this, Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, on our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Kings, princes, priests, fathers, they've not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness, even in the midst of God's goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves, and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sin. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. What's occurred here is that through this prayer of Nehemiah the people of Israel have recognized their wickedness they've recognized that they've turned away from God and they've also recognized that God has restored them and they're recognizing how much God loves them so it's a moment where there is freedom in repentance they've recognized their sin and they've repented for it and they're praising God for His love for his mercy.
1: Uh, it's an amazing story, isn't it? The story that we read um, together. The story of the, the scriptures, the true, the lasting, the better, the eternal story. But the story of the Bible, the story of the scriptures, wasn't the only story that was being told to the people of Israel during Nehemiah's day. And it's not the only story that we in America in 2015 are being told is it? What do I mean by that? Well, there's always more than one story, multiple stories that are vying for our heart's affections, our life's devotion, and the spending of our limited resources, our limited days on this earth. One of those stories, of course, is the stories of the scripture that we read together this morning. And there's lots of other stories. One story that is very so pervasive in our culture that it is really the air we breathe in America is evidenced by these slogans that I'm about to to read. Just see if you can pick up on the theme of this story that our culture wants us to buy into. Obey your thirst because you're worth it. Where do you want to go today? Be all you can be. What can Brown do for you? Have it your way. And I could go on and on. It's, it's almost too easy. But do you see the theme that starts to rise up from these slogans that is the theme of this story that our culture wants us to buy into? I'll, I'll, there's one hint. There's one word that's in all these slogans. Did you guys notice it? You, your, right? Okay, I'm going to read them again, see if you can see it. Obey your thirst because you're worth it. Where do you want to go today? Be all you can be. What can Brown do for you? Have it your way. Now, each of these slogans is innocent enough by itself, right? I mean, we're talking about Sprite and a Big Mac, okay? It's, It's not the end of the world in and of himself, but together... These slogans are merely symptomatic of the underlying theme that our culture wants us to buy into, this underlying story. And it sounds about right. I mean, doesn't it? It sounds sounds pretty good. Uh, But this story is all about us. It's all about what we want, all about what we think we need, our hopes, our dreams. It's the story of the American dream, isn't it? It goes something like this. We're supposed to go to the best school we can go to, get the best grades we can get, get the best job we can get so we can get the best spouse we can get so we can have the family that looks good on our Christmas card, right? Get the biggest house we can get, go on the coolest vacations we can go on and then retire with as much money in our bank account as we can retire with when it's all said and done. I mean, this, this is the story, and it sounds about right, it sounds pretty good. And the reason it sounds good, and it so intuitively sounds right on to us, is because all the things that I mentioned are good things. They're blessings. They're gifts from the hand of our covenant Lord. But the problem with the story that our culture wants us to buy into is the story of our culture claims that these good things are, in Tim Keller's word, ultimate things that these good things are ultimate things. In other words, these things are proper objects of our deepest affections, our utmost devotion, and the expenditure of our limited resource and days on this planet. Our culture wouldn't describe it like this, but in more biblical terms, our culture's story is telling us that these good things are proper objects of worship. And, you know, we buy into it. If we're honest, we buy into it. Why? Because these things are what we think we really need, what we really want. We think that they can satisfy the deepest longing of our soul. After all, our culture tells us this life is all about us. The story of this life is all about us. What we want, what we need, our hopes, our dreams, it's all about us. But the Bible tells a different story. The Bible tells a grand narrative from creation to recreation. And the main difference of the story of the Bible and our culture story is the main character. In the culture story, man, we are it. We are center stage. We're the main character. In the Bible story, God is the main character. He's center stage. It's all about him, his plan, his purposes. So as we encounter the story of the Bible, we'll see it leads us to repentance. That's exactly where it led the people of Israel as they recounted the story. As David said, they responded to the story with repentance. And so that's where we're headed. So first, let's recount the story. Let's go through the story. Once again, it was read over us But let's walk through it one more time. And as we do, we'll see a pattern rise up from the story. Did you guys notice it? It was alluded to, but this is cycle. It's this pattern of the story of the Bible that goes like this. Creation, rebellion, judgment, repentance, restoration. If you get nothing else, Get that. That's the framework of your entire Bible. Creation, rebellion, judgment, repentance, restoration. And we see through this prayer that cycle happen over and over again. So we'll start at stage one, creation. We see in verses 5b through 15, God and his general work of creating everything that has been created and then narrowing in on creating a people For his name, a covenant people for his name, this people of Israel. We've read it, so I'm going to fly. If you have your Bible, I'm going to give you the verse and summarize, highlighting God's action in each verse. So follow with me if you can. Verse 5b, it's God's name that is glorious and exalted above everything. In verse 6, God made everything and God preserves everything. In verse 7, God chose Abraham, not the other way around, and God named Abram Abraham. In verse 8, God made a covenant with Abraham and God kept his covenant promises. In verse 9 through 11, God saw Israel's affliction in Egypt and delivered them with signs and wonders and made a name for himself. In verse 12, God led his people through the wilderness in the way they should go by day and by night. In verse 13 and 14, God came down to Mount Sinai with his people gathered at the foot of the mountain and gave him graciously his law. I love uh, the way it's put in this passage. And he gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. God graciously gave his life-giving word to his people. In verse 15, God satisfied Israel's hunger and thirst, not only their spiritual needs, but their physical practical needs as they wandered through the desert for 40 years. You see the theme, who's the main character in the story of the scriptures? It's not us. It's God. God is the main character in the stories. So we see him even in these verses as creator, sustainer, covenant creator, covenant keeper, deliverer, leader, word giver, And provider. And if God is the main character in the Bible story, and if the Bible story is the true, the ultimate, and the lasting story, then it only makes sense to live our lives as if God is the main character rather than us. It's only logical. If God is truly the main character in the story, the only story that's true. And we should live our lives in light of that story and in light of his incomparable greatness. Think about it. It's God who created us. It's God who sustains us. Every breath we breathe, every beat of our heart, every lucid thought is a gracious gift from the hand of our God. He is faithful to his covenant promises. Even when we are unfaithful, he and he alone can deliver us. He and he alone can lead us. He alone gives words that bring life rather than death, and he provides for our every need. God, from the beginning of time, from the beginning of creation, has been pouring out his goodness on his creation. But the tragedy of the story of the Bible is how his creation responds to his goodness. If you are familiar with the story of the Old Testament, you know that Israel responded to God's goodness through his creation with rebellion. And now we get to the second stage of the story, creation, rebellion in verses 16 through 17. As Adam and Eve rebelled in the garden in Genesis 3, Israel again and again throughout the story of the Old Testament rebelled against him. Look at verses 16 through 17, the first part of 17 there. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. These verses leave no room for doubt as to the rebellion of the people of Israel. And it's described several ways. If you read it, they acted presumptuously. They stiffened their necks twice in the span of two verses. They did not obey twice in the span of two verses, and they were not mindful of the wonders that the Lord had performed on their behalf. And the rebellion of the people of Israel, like our rebellion, evidences the fact that they were living in light of a story that was not the story of the scriptures. They had made something other than God their ultimate thing and were living for that thing, that created thing, rather than, than their creator. And before we're too hard on Israel, we do the exact same three, the same thing. Paul says this in Romans three twenty three. He says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Like Israel, we have responded to God's goodness with rebellion. And so the next stage of the story is judgment. Okay? Creation, rebellion, judgment. So as we get to the next part of verse 17, we're expecting God to lay down the hammer to bring his judgment upon his people in the wake of the rebellion. But that's not what we see there, is it, as we continue in verse 17? Rather than moving straight to judgment, which is coming, the prayer pauses and reflects on the greatness and the gracious, loving character of our God. In these verses, We see that God is a God who is ready to forgive. He's gracious. He's merciful. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. In these verses, we see God did not forsake his people despite their great rebellion, but he continued to lead them, continued to instruct them, continued to satisfy their hunger and thirst despite their great rebellion and continued to be faithful to his covenant promises despite their great unfaithfulness. God is perfectly just, and he will bring about judgment upon rebellion. But our God is also a God who stands ready to forgive. Look at Nehemiah nine seventeen b the latter portion to verse 18. These are by far and away my favorite verses in this entire chapter. And I think it will become obvious why as we talk about them. Verse 17, the second part. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them even when. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. And the Lord's immeasurable grace, mercy, and love He stands ready to forgive. Our God is a God who stands right now ready to forgive. He was ready to forgive in Nehemiah's day, and he's ready to forgive on July 12th, 2015. And he's ready to forgive even when, look at Nehemiah 9.18 again, even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt, and had committed great blasphemies. Those two words are my favorite in the chapter. Even when. Our God is a God who stands ready to forgive, even when his people are actively rebelling against him, making a golden calf, even when they're committing great blasphemies against him, even when they're in the height of the rebellion, shame, and guilt, he is a God who stands ready to forgive. And our God has not changed. He is the same yesterday. He's the same today. And he is the same forever. He stands ready to forgive you. And he stands ready to forgive me today, this morning. But if we're honest, some of us, and I I know this is the fact because I get here on some of my darker days as a Christian. Some of us have bought the lie that our enemy likes to tell us that somehow we have found a way to sin send, send beyond the reach of God's grace and mercy. It's one of Satan's favorite lies, but the weakness in the lie is that it actually is a lie. <laughs> because for God's people, there is no limit to his grace and his mercy. As long as we have breath and our lungs, as long as the Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says, today is called today, our God stands ready to forgive us. No matter what skeleton we're hiding in our closet, no matter what shame is currently gripping your heart, if God only knew, he knows. No matter what you live in fear of being exposed, no matter what, where you've been or what you've done, even when, we are at our lowest, even when we're at our very worst, even when we're experiencing the heaviness of shame and guilt. Our God stands ready to forgive. You believe that? Jesus taught this truth, one of the greatest truths in all the scripture, through a parable. You may remember it, the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15, one of my favorite parables. If you're familiar with the story, you know the son responded to the father's goodness by taking his inheritance, going to foreign land, and squandering it. Good times lasted as long as the money was there, but the money ran out, and he faced incredible hardship to the point where he was eating with the pigs. You ever been there? We've all eaten with our version of the pigs, right? He's in the height of his shame and the height of his rebellion and as he's sitting there eating pig food, he realizes his only way out is to turn from this mess and turn back to his father. In other words, his only path to restoration is repentance. And so he starts the long journey back to his father's house. And as he's going, he's familiar enough, the story of the Bible, to know creation, ju- uh, you know, rebellion, judgment. I'm going to face judgment when I get to my father's house. And so he's walking the walk of shame back home, and he's recounting, he's creating this story like every good lawyer does. Okay, here's really what was going on, and here's an argument of uh, why you should take me back in your house. Okay, this it really wasn't as bad, or I, I don't know, I'm not worthy, whatever. Just anything to make the Father forgive him. But one of the most shocking parts of the story is in Luke fifteen twenty. But while he, that's the prodigal son, was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Much to the son's shock, no doubt, the embrace and the acceptance of the father preceded any speech that he could make. Even when the prodigal was eating with the pigs, even when the prodigal felt so unworthy, so unworthy of forgiveness of love, even then the father in the story was standing on his porch, straining his eyes, longing to see the form of his son returning and walking back to him. And that's a picture of our God. Our God is a God who stands ready to forgive. But our God is also a God who judges those who persist in the rebellion against him. And that's what we see in verse 26. Look back at verse 26. We, the pause in the story has stopped. We're, we're back to the progression, creation. We're back to the people's rebellion. Look at verse 26. Nevertheless, despite the fact that God stands ready to forgive them, despite the fact that he's a gracious and merciful God, nevertheless, they were disobedient. And rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. They killed the prophets because the prophets were telling them, Listen, you're living in rebellion against God. You should change. And none of us like to be told uh, that we are not doing right. And so they killed their prophets, shut any way to get back to the Lord. And so the Lord knew the only way. I'm going to get these people back as if I bring judgment upon them. And that's what we see the next stage of the cycle in verse 27. Creation, rebellion, and finally judgment. Nehemiah 9:27. Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. The Lord finally brought about judgment on his people. But we know... From where we've just been in the chapter, Nehemiah 9, 17b through 25, God doesn't bring judgment just to inflict pain. God brings judgment to bring about repentance in his people. And that's what we see as we continue in verse 27. We get to the next stage creation, rebellion, judgment, repentance. Look at verse 27. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, it worked. The Lord brought about judgment on his people to bring repentance and his people respond in repentance. And so we get to the next and final stage of the story, restoration. Look at the last part of Nehemiah nine twenty seven. And you heard them from heaven and according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. The people cried out to the Lord in repentance in the midst of their suffering and the Lord responded with restoration. He sent them saviors, like you're referring to the judges who delivered the people in the period of the judges, as evidenced by the book of Judges. Uh, so the people are restored. We've seen the full pattern of the story of the Bible, the Old Testament creation, rebellion, judgment, repentance, restoration. All is good. The people are restored. Everybody's happy. We can close our Bibles and go home. All is well. Right? Wrong. The pattern starts up again in verse 28. And in fact, we see every stage in one verse. Look at it with me, Nehemiah 9, 28. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, rebellion. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them, judgment. Yet when they turned and cried to you, repentance, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies, restoration. Creation, rebellion, judgment, repentance, restoration. If you're like me, by this point, you're starting to feel a little good that you're not the only person who doesn't get it right the first time, right? They didn't get it, but now they've been told a second time. They've walked through the pattern again. Okay, so now we can go home. They're restored. Everything's well. End of story. Wrong again. The cycle starts up again in the very next verse. Look at uh, Nehemiah 9.29. And you warn them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules. This is remarkable. In the wake of God's goodness and restoration again and again, the people again rebel, and the rebellion leads them to the next stage of the pattern, judgment. Look at Nehemiah 9.30, many years You bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. That's an important phrase there. Therefore, you gave them to the hand of the people of the lands. It's referring there to the exile. If you're familiar with the story of the Old Testament, you'll know the United Kingdom of Israel was divided into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. With the northern kingdom going into exile in 722 B.C., the southern kingdom had a couple of righteous kings, and so it took them a little longer. But eventually, around 586 B.C., they went into exile as well from the kingdom of Babylon. And the people start to see the fact, after looking at the cycle, the pattern in the Old Testament, that, you know what, we're still sitting under that judgment. God created. We rebelled. He sent his judgment, sent us into exile. And though we've returned to the land, we're really still under his judgment. And so, knowing the story of the Old Testament, they know, well, the only path to restoration is repentance, so let's repent. And that's exactly what they did in verses 32 through 38. We've read it, so I'm going to give you a summary of it. The prayer of repentance in Nehemiah 9:32-38 begins in verse 32 with the people proclaiming the greatness of God and crying out for him to look upon their distress. The prayer continues in verse 33 through 36, declaring that the Lord was perfectly just and righteous in bringing about the judgment that they're experiencing because they and their fathers had rebelled against him. Judgment follows rebellion, they admit and confess the justice of their God, and then they put before the Lord in verses 36 and 37, the desperation of their present circumstances. It says this, verse 36, "'Behold, we are slaves this day. In the land that you gave our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts, behold, we are slaves.'" And its rich yield goes to kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. We are in great distress. The people expected to be slaves in Assyria and Babylon or in the Persian Empire that took over. But they did not expect to be slaves as they returned from the exile to the promised land. But in fact, they were. They were no longer an autonomous nation, a free nation that was going to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation so that the whole world could be blessed. Rather, they were slaves, subject to the Persian Empire. And though they were in the land, they couldn't enjoy the fruit of the land that the Lord had intended for them, for they had to give it to the Persian Empire in the form of taxes. They were still under the judgment of God that began in 722 and then in 586 in the exile. They recognize this, and they respond with repentance. But not just a prayer of repentance. They actively engage in the act of repentance by renewing their covenant with the Lord. Look at verse 38, our last verse of the chapter. Nehemiah 9, 38. Because of all this, because of the story we reviewed, because we see you're the creator, you're good, we've rebelled against you, and we're under our judgment, and we know The path to restoration is repentance. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On a sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. In other words, those who led in the rebellion are now going to be the leaders in the act of repentance. And so the people respond to the story of the scriptures with repentance. We'll learn more about what this covenant renewal ceremony is, was the substance of it next week in Nehemiah 10. But what's important for our purposes is to observe that Nehemiah 9 ends with repentance. And so we know the, the storyline of the Bible, we're expecting to see restoration. Restoration follows repentance. But in fact, we don't see restoration at the end of Nehemiah 9, at the end of Nehemiah as the Old Testament comes to a close. And then for 400 long years after the close of the Old Testament, still no ultimate and true restoration. But then the long-awaited restoration came to us through the birth of a baby in Bethlehem. His name is Jesus Christ. God sent his son to take upon himself the judgment that we deserve. See, God is perfectly just and has to judge sin. Judgment follows rebellion. But our God is also a gracious and merciful God who stands ready to forgive. So how can God be just and how can God forgive? He can do this because the judgment we deserved was placed upon Christ as he hung upon a Roman cross. As Christ died on the cross, he died the death that we deserved. But as he rose from the grave, the check cleared, and our hope was secured to live a fully restored eternity with him forever in the new heaven and new earth that we talked about a couple weeks ago in Revelation 21 and 22. But we know, we've seen the pattern of the story of the Bible, creation, rebellion, judgment, repentance, restoration. We can't get to restoration without repentance. So what does repentance look like for us? Well, for those who have not placed their faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ, repentance looks like turning away your trust and your hope and your faith in the created things of this world and placing them on your creator upon the completed work of Jesus Christ on the cross who took the judgment that you deserve if only you reach out empty hands of faith and receive it if you haven't done that i would love for you to do that this morning to talk to you please come up and talk to me but what about those of us who have lifted empty hands of faith and received the completed work of Christ that he accomplished on our behalf. What does repentance look like for us? Well, it looks like admitting that there are two stories that are vying for our heart's affections, our life's devotion, and our limited resources. And admitting, seeing, by God's gracious revelation to us, that we have subconsciously, to some extent or another, bought into this story that our culture tells us, that life is all about us. In other words, we have made created things our ultimate thing rather than our creator being our ultimate thing. And so repentance looks like recognizing where we've done that and repenting from it so we can orient our lives around the story of the Bible rather than the story our culture is telling us, reorient our lives around the greatness of our God who has made a way for us to spend eternity with him. But wherever you are this morning, whether you have placed your faith in Christ or not, the message is the same. Our God is a God who stands ready to forgive. He's a gracious and merciful and loving God. And not only does he want to forgive you, he's provided a means by which you can be forgiven through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this opportunity to come together and hear it spoken over us, to respond in song as we sing to you, worship you through song, and then to hear your word explained. But Lord, there's only one teacher, and that's your Holy Spirit. And so Holy Spirit, I pray that you would Give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you would have us see and hear. Lord, you promise that your word never returns void, but it always accomplishes what you intended when you sent it to us. And so, Lord, we claim that promise. We cling to that promise that you would work in our hearts, that you would accomplish in the deepest parts of us. What you intend to accomplish this morning, that you would reveal to us if we are believers the things, the good gifts, the good things that you've given us that we've made ultimate things, Lord, would you reveal that to us and free us from that? Lord, if we are here this morning have not placed our faith in what Christ has done for us and who He is for us, Lord, would you bring about salvation through the work of your spirit? Would you bring dry bones to life? for your glory, for the good of your people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: Thank you for listening to audio from Norris Ferry Community Church, located in Shreveport, Louisiana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Norris Ferry Community Church, please visit us online at norrisferrychurch.org.